This episode is brought to you by our wonderful patrons. If you enjoy the Coffee and Cocktails podcast, feel free to support our show by becoming a patron for as little as one pound per month. By subscribing to our show, you get early access to ad-free and bonus episodes, patron-only content, and a chance to talk with our coolest guest speakers. All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast and subscribe today. Thanks for listening and on with the show. Hello and welcome to Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. We have the pleasure today of listening to Dr. Ritu Jan, who will be sharing insights based on her experiences on stigma and discrimination that invisibilizes rare disease communities. But rather than ask what drink you were having for the show, Ritu, would you like to begin? Before you begin, I just want to have a little caveat. I apologize for some of the sound quality because we have just moved house. And of course, just as we hit record, there are individuals outside who decide to do some drilling outside our home. So uh, for those listeners, um, I apologize, but I am hope and I know you will look forward to uh, Rita's talk. So Ritu, so Ritu, would you like to begin and, you know, tell us about the interesting things we're going to discuss today? Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much for giving me this platform to talk more about stigma and discrimination as it impacts rare disease communities that contributes to their invisibilization in society and leads to compounding their um, suffering in a way. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about what identities mean, so we can talk about what disability means, and then assess what exactly is stigma and discrimination and how consciously or subconsciously we harbor these ideas and prejudices that unfortunately lead to greater suffering than needs to be. So a disclaimer before I begin, I'm no expert. I'm just sort of taking you through my stream of consciousness, but in all in various aspects as a caregiver to a young girl, to a young lady who has a rare skin condition also as a very passionate rare disease advocate who champions for rare disease policy, um, both in my country, Singapore, as well as globally, and also as a researcher uh, whose current project examines stigma and discrimination as it constitutes barriers in healthcare among people living with HIV in Singapore. So let's start with my understanding of identity. And how do we define identity? I want to share some of my thoughts. As I said, my stream of consciousness. I see identity as attributes, as constructs, usually centered around race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, um, culture, ethnicity, nationality. So these are not really physical attributes, but social constructions and labels that are commonly understood and shared. And one prime example is that of our national censuses, which use some of these labels to decide what our identities are. So when we think of identity, unfortunately, this is um, our identities are not really single, singular or um, simplistic constructs, but they are, to me, multi-layered, multiplex, and multi-dimensional and intersecting. So let's think of another attribute or characteristic of identity, 
that we think of when we think of people um, with certain disabilities. And that identity is the disabled identity. How do we understand disability? So I did a bit of research and I find that the WHO defines disability as, and I quote, a difficulty in functioning at the body, person or societal levels in one or more life domains as experienced by an individual with a health condition in interaction with contextual factors, unquote. By this definition of limitation in functioning, over 1 billion people worldwide have some form of disability, a very large number, wouldn't you say? Um, in comparison, in my country, Singapore, disability is defined as a lack of disability. Sorry, let me repeat myself. In Singapore, disability is defined as the lack of ability in doing three out of the six tasks, which means if you can't do any of the three, such as feeding, dressing, washing, toileting, walking around or transferring, then you're considered disabled. That means if you can't walk around and feed yourself, that's two out of the six, you're not defined as disabled. How do you and I commonly think of disability? We don't really think of the WHO or national definitions of disability, but think for a moment. What do we think when we think disabled? A wheelchair. As I mentioned in my talk with you, Anne, on disability awareness earlier, this is what we think of people in wheelchairs when we think of disabled people. Now, what is really a disability? How do, we how do you and I define or understand disability? Um, usually, we think of these as a physical or a medical definition. And commonly, here's my point, a deviation from what we consider, consider normal in performance. It's almost as if def disability is a definition of opposition to normal. So in order to really understand and define disability for ourselves, and also to perhaps um, disrupt the notion of disability, I want us to think of what does it mean to be normal? What if you have a mental health condition? It's not physical, it's not um, a visible, definition. It doesn't put you in a wheelchair. It does not deprive you of the ability to move around or transfer. Um, in most cases, I would say, and I speak as a layperson, not, not with any uh, empirical data, but it will not prevent you from um, toileting or transferring or feeding yourself, etc. So does that mean that if you have a mental health condition, then you are normal? What if you have uh, diabetes or a curved spine? Let's say a missing finger or a toe. These are not physically limiting, but they are deviations from the norm. Does that make us disabled? No. So then if you can have these conditions and still be called normal, how do you define disability? Let's disrupt this binary of disability and normality. 
So how do you define norm normal? What if you have a mental health condition? Having a mental health condition in most cases, and I speak without empirical data, simply as a layperson, having a mental condition does, does not um, prevent you from one of the six um, activities that Singapore considers as disabled, like feeding or dressing or washing or transferring. So you are considered normal if you have a mental health condition. What about diabetes, a curved spine, a missing finger or a toe? These do not put you in a wheelchair. They do not limit you physically in most cases, I would say, but they're still not normal. But do they make us disabled? No. So then how do we understand normality and how do we um, understand disability? I want us to re-examine, and I hope I can encourage all our listeners to do that, to think about how our understandings and notions of normal and disabled actually generate certain notions of stigma and discrimination, which is the point that I want to focus on today. So let's move on to stigma. These, these stigmatized identities, as I understand, are often socially constructed and based on uh, physical characteristics often. Like let's say uh, someone from a minority community is um, stigmatized sometimes in certain societies. Disabled uh, identities are also similarly viewed with a certain perception of stigma uh, may not often be discrimination, but definitely some prejudice. However, disabilities are not always obvious or visible. In fact, certain disab disabilities are often genetically inherited, but then just as often many are acquired. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, uh, an illness that one acquires. I'm thinking of um, a disabling condition as a result of an accident, for example. Unfortunately, the pain and challenge, while the pain and challenge is inevitable for anyone living with any disability, whether it's visible or invisible, we, you and I, um, society, often compounds this pain and challenge with our latent stigma and discrimination and prejudice. Which brings me to my world of rare skin conditions. And that is a, a particular area that I work in, uh, both as a caregiver as well as a um, rare disease advocate. So rare skin conditions are often, you know, pretty evident, uh, visible, because we wear our skin. But the physical impact of many rare conditions is truly, truly painful. People live with the pain and other condition-related challenges. In fact, many of the rare skin conditions, such as epidermolysis bullosa or ichthyosis, are visible. Uh, for example, ichthyosis presents itself in the form of scaly skin. And epidermolysis bullosa um, often leads to very visible, painful blistering of the skin, some forms of which are visible, leave scars on the skin, and some forms like EB simplex 
are not visible. So people live with both this condition as well as related condition-related other challenges, which are often not apparent. Uh, in my experience, EB or epidermolysis bullosa has certain other challenges that impact the eyes, the mouth, the gastrointestinal tract, etc. These are usually not visible. So I come to the main point of my talk today. How do we inadvertently compound the challenges of those living with certain conditions, particularly rare conditions, which we don't understand or have enough information and experience about. My experiences show that among the children that we have in, uh, around us, one of the biggest challenges is to these people who live with rare conditions is nosy and judgmental people. Certain parents, for example, are afraid that their children will be infected by what they presume to be a contagious condition. And EB is not contagious. Contagious, it is inherited. Certain other mothers have been accused of possibly taking drugs while pregnant, which leads to a child with these challenges. In fact, we've also had strangers accusing some of our parents of burning or abusing their children that leads to this, these painful wounds. So how do you think people living with rare conditions feel? How do families feel? Of course, these questions are natural. This curiosity is natural. But I'd like to say that our judgment is not warranted. Yes, judgment is also natural, but it harms it hurts, it's painful, and sometimes it cuts deeper than the wounds caused by the conditions. So what should people do when faced with people living with invisible conditions or even actually with visible conditions? I'd like to encourage us listeners to educate themselves, read, volunteer with communities to understand the challenges of people who live with any condition, be it an illness, be it uh, any other challenge. Have empathy. And if you can't do any of the above, simply be kind and withhold your judgment. Thank you. Ah, oh, that was lovely. Thank you so much for that talk. I really enjoyed that. Um, I took down... Um, yeah, no, I think because um, I know we talked about um, some aspects of this in a previous talk that we had done on disability awareness. And for those listeners that are just tuning in, um, there are episode 27. And uh, Dr. Rita Jan does an amazing talk about uh, importance of, of educating ourselves and he goes into um, a lot more detail. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, then I'd highly suggest you listen to that when you get a chance. Um, but I had a couple of questions I wanted to just sort of talk with you about. And the, the first thing that sort of sure, came to mind during, yes? So the first sure, thing that shoot. Yeah, came to mind is that uh, you would say that um, to be disabled, it can be considered an opposition to what is considered normal, quote unquote. And I thought that that was a really poignant discussion that you made because one of the things that's always sort of 
come to my mind, and I know we talked about this in the previous episode about, you know, do we, especially if you have an invisible condition, you know, do you say that you have it on a job application? Do you not say it? Is, is it just going to be another mark against you because job competition is rife? And so I'd be curious to know from your perspective, this opposition to normality, so to speak, do you think those with a disability or those with a condition could be construed as being difficult? That is possible, and I won't rule out anything. I've seen some extremely strange and bizarre behavior, uh, which, um, which really I would never have expected. So I would say definitely one can never anticipate the reactions of people who learn about your condition. But I would say you should be upfront about your condition, particularly if you feel it might hamper your, the performance of your job, or if you feel your own safety might be compromised if your employers or your colleagues don't know about your condition. So I would say think of yourself first, mm. because most people who apply for jobs, I would say would be responsible enough to evaluate their suitability for a particular job. So trust yourself and your judgment. Okay. No, that's a really good piece of advice. Um, another thing that you had talked about briefly, but I was wondering if we could use this as a chance for you to talk about this a bit more, is that you are doing work on HIV. And I was wondering if you could tell us how, first tell us a bit about the work you're doing on HIV and also how that ties into your work on epidermolysis um, bullosa. And I apologize for saying that incorrectly about your work with EB, how those sort of work together and how basically how you got involved in that. Thank you, Anne. That's a really uh, important question and very close to my heart. So I've always um, been very passionate about equity in health, equitable access to health, equ equitable health rights, and um, especially since I became more and more involved and aware of the challenges of people living with rare conditions, particularly with EB. And I saw how excluded they were from health systems. Um, and it is for a very good reason that rare conditions um, are called orphan diseases. And many countries have what is known as the orphan a disease policy or often drug policy because people with rare conditions are usually excluded from healthcare plans, from reimbursement, from insurance policies, from uh, um, even having access to the drugs and devices that they need, which tend to be exorbitant and beyond the reach of many patients, people living with rare conditions. Uh, even social support is extremely rare for those living with rare conditions and for their caregivers. So the challenges of these communities are, I cannot be really underplayed. So how I got interested in, or what I'm doing with my HIV project, and let me share a bit about that. When I realized that I'm not going to be getting research funding to evaluate or study aspects of living with rare conditions, be it quality of life or stigma and discrimination faced by people living with a particular or multiple rare conditions, I began to look beyond um, to see how I could extrapolate aspects of research to benefit um, rare disease communities. 
in a way, I started looking at marginal health communities, people living with marginal conditions uh, and marginal communities with health conditions. And um, then I became aware of the challenges of people living with HIV in Singapore. And as I read more, I realized this is not just Singapore, it's global, where a society still, there are certain sections of society which still hold this perception that um, HIV is a gay disease. It is a disease that is acquired through promiscuous or uh, some kind of uh, immoral sexual behavior. And there, are, there is the stigma and discrimination surrounding HIV is so, so overwhelming that it, it began to shock me. And I wanted to investigate how this stigma towards people living with HIV contributes to their health-seeking behavior. For example, do people avoid um, test, going for regular tests, which could help detect if they have HIV, that therefore they could start on uh, medications that would enable them to live a better life as compared to if they didn't take that medication and eventually might end up with AIDS. So there were a whole lot of other um, perceptions that I became aware of and I wanted very passionately to study what this was in Singapore so I could look at one marginalized health community and hopefully extrapolate to other marginalized health communities. Gosh, that's interesting. I mean, one of the things we've kind of tapped into a bit is this idea of um, diseases and taboo. And what it seems like you're telling me is that while there are taboos associated with having conditions, whether people choose to acknowledge those or not, it seems like even with those conditions that have been acknowledged since the 80s, that there still seems to be a taboo element attached to that. And I know we had talked about, you know, the importance of educating ourselves and being mindful and respectful. But I think in a broader sense, I'd be curious to know from your perspective, how, how as a society can we transition our concepts of what is taboo into something that is more accepting and normalized? I wish I had the answer to that question and I would have started implementing that immediately. I think just as um, people living with these conditions desperately need medical help, they also need acceptance from society and a breakdown of these taboos and prejudices. So I'm not sure I can answer that question, but I do know that perhaps one of the most important things we can do is start with education in our systems right from childhood. You know, educate our kids about, about people who don't conform, whether it is through a sexual identity or through what we consider what we consider to be normal or what does it mean to be disabled. And rather than assume that these things are a or B, let's hear from the very people who live with these. Let's make education more realistic, more a part of life living community rather than textbook driven. Let's, 
let's encourage children to learn more rather than tell them what's right and wrong. Let's encourage them to go find out, explore and learn. As I said, I don't have any magical answers. I'm thinking aloud here that education is the key, not just with education at all levels, but also with people, just you and I, members of the public, communities, whose responsibility it is really to uh, almost a civic duty to understand and be open-minded about accepting people who may not conform to what we think of as correct or normal. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that that's a really, um, really good takeaway. And I was going to say to sort of wrap this up, what would you like to be sort of the main message that we walk away with in terms of our understanding of stigma, discrimination, and not just within rare disease communities, but how can we apply this to our general understanding of um, society as a whole? So there are two things I want to say. Um, um, one, I want to add on to a point earlier about um, what society uh, can do. I want to share that the more I progress with my research around HIV in Singapore, the more I realize how we, as members of the public, have actually aggravated the problem of HIV. Mm. When people who are afraid of our judgment, of, um, of being shunned. So I have participants who time and again, almost every participant says that they have faced such horrific marginalization, uh, almost as if, um, almost as if people People don't want to even shake your hand, forget about hugging you or invite you to their homes. You are completely an, a social outcast because people are afraid because they don't know how HIV is transmitted. So they absolutely exclude you and uh, put you in a darker space where you are already struggling with the condition, which is now compounded by this rejection from society. So. It's at various levels, um, including sometimes from healthcare professionals who, who shun people living with HIV that compounds their condition. So um, this kind of behavior then makes people reluctant to get more information on how they could manage their condition, get, prevents them from getting access to tests, prevents them from actually letting go of their denial and accepting that they have a condition that's lifelong and they need to be treated, prevents them from accessing the medical care because they are afraid of the treatment in the medical sentence, afraid of going to public hospitals because they're afraid that people will find out, afraid that their colleagues and bosses will find out and they will lose their jobs. So it's at various levels that we aggravate the situation. Now, what can people take away from this? You asked me, what's the one takeaway that mm. I want? I think we as a society really need to reflect on how we can be kinder people 
we don't all, all have to have knowledge, information, and do research around rare conditions or around HIV or any other um, ailment. But we do, as a collective, as humanity, need to do some soul searching on whether we are perfect, whether there's anything about us that could be judged by someone if it was known, and perhaps just reflect how a little kindness, acceptance, Mm. And withholding of judgment goes a very long way in easing the life of someone else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really good sort of sobering mentality is that um, I think people sort of don't necessarily appreciate the importance of kindness and that... of empathy, you know, of yeah. putting yourself in their shoes for a moment, step into their shoes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, just that alone, it, it I think it gives people, individuals like myself, uh, you know, sort of an understanding that we don't have to be an island um, and that, you know, while we've had, you know, COVID is kind of... Um, propel people to think a little bit more COVID is transient you know it comes and then it goes sometimes you have long COVID sometimes it can have permanent effects but it is not designed and I say that I don't try to say this lightly but it's I put this in quotes not really designed to um, be permanent you know and I think for those who have been through it or know who people who have been through it Imagine having COVID the entirety of your life. And that is absolutely a beautiful comparison, a great analogy. In fact, I have had so many moments where I feel like looking around me and saying, now you know what it feels like. Now you know what this fear of contagion this stigma and discrimination feels like now the shoe is on the other foot with many, with many individuals. Um, of course, I'm not speaking for everyone, but we've all gone through that fear, right? Of protecting ourselves, of um, isolating, of barricading ourselves from the rest of those who may be infected to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Imagine if you were one of those within that barricade, mm. who have that condition that was imposed, that barricade was imposed by others. Right, right. And then how do you, as the person who has, let's say this long-term COVID, this forever COVID, you know, to realize that it's not one of those things where you can say, I wish it was over. I can't wait for it to be over. Because for those of us that have a permanent condition, there is no over. So how do you... How do you come to accept your condition and then work around it so that you can live as full a life as possible? Absolutely, Anne. Mm. That's, that's something that I hope every listener will think about and, and reflect on and see what can they do just to help one other person around them. Absolutely. They would have made a difference. Yeah, definitely. Well, I have to say that's it from us in Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. 
Um, again, I'd like to thank Ritu for her wonderful talk this afternoon. And if you enjoyed listening to Ritu, feel free to follow, subscribe, leave a comment, or tell a friend about our show. It's support from our viewers and listeners that really helps to keep the show going. And if there's any future topics that you would like us to discuss, feel free to write us directly at coffeeandcocktailspodcast.com. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.